Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And let us read the portion that we have for today, verses 13 through 18. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers or brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left, until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And those, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. May God bless the reading of his word. Let us pray. Father, we commit the reading and the exposition of the word to you. Pray that your spirit who inspired the word and breathed it out may illumine our minds, the minds of us who hear, the mind of the one who explains it, that Christ may be exalted, that your people may be edified. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Recently, this week, I read a post from a mother, a godly woman from a church in the Dominican Republic, this couple is very, very wealthy. And as the boy, Pastor Freddie, talked about last week, who has a child with leukemia, that was a, another family, a poor family, that our church helped. And this boy recuperated of his leukemia in the Dominican Republic. This wealthy family had means to bring their son to New York. But he did not recuperate he died. 22 years old, graduated from his bachelor's degree in the hospital, and a few weeks later, he went to be with the Lord. It was this couple, a very generous, giving, loving couple from a good, solid church who has served the Lord for many years who raised their boy in the fear and instruction of the Lord, lost their one and only boy. This mother wrote, Today, it is seven months that your dreams ended, your gold, your smile, your wit, in your desire to serve people and reach your goals. I miss you as much as the first day. 
If you know that couple as I happen to know them, your heart breaks. I frequently, even in the middle of the night, pray for them. Not long and not that I'm godly that I wake up to pray in the middle of the night. I'm just an old dude who sleeps very little, so I pray for people as I'm trying to catch my sleep. That's all. It's not any sign of personal godliness. But somebody commented about this and wrote to her, I do not know and do not want to know your pain, but I pray that God may comfort you with a thought that your son is more alive today than he ever was, because God is the God of the living. I also pray that this thought may comfort you. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even us, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. That's our text this morning. It is a text on eschatology, on the doctrine of the last things. It is a subject that people love to debate. I know Christians who separate and split from others and treat them as quasi-non-Christians because their eschatology does not coincide. What is eschatology? The doctrine of the last things. The doctrine of the end. Which was not given for speculation, for arguing, or for discussion. Eschatology in scripture was given for comforting and for consolation. So today we find a very doctrinal passage that deals with this difficult aspect of theology, eschatology, but it's not a lecture in theology and the last things. It is just a passage to comfort people like that mother who lost her only boy. And there were people grieving in that church in Thessalonica as a result of recent deaths. My outline for today is quite simple, a purpose. There is in the passage, do not grieve as those who have no hope. And then an argument, Jesus rose, and because he rose, we will also be raised with him. Then a promise, Jesus will come back for us, whether we are dead or alive, Jesus will come back to take us. And finally, a practical application. Comfort one another with these words. Let's tackle the first point. The purpose. Do not grieve as those who do not have hope. Now, please notice what the passage is saying. Saying, do not grieve as those who do not have hope. It would be terribly cruel about Paul if he would have told these grieving people who had lost loved ones, oh, do not grieve. The Lord is our strength. (laughs) There are a few things I hate. I'll tell you one I hate. Spiritual people. Those who are always in victory. Those who go to the funeral homes and say, you have to be rejoicing. Your husband, your mother, your child is with the Lord. Rejoice. If I ever have to witness that, I think I'll 
be a very bad example of the gospel in that funeral home. But there are people like that. There are people who are completely insensitive or insensible. Paul is not saying do not grieve. Paul is not saying do not worry, be happy. Paul is saying as you are grieving, I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope because you have a hope in your pain and in your ache. Now in context, remember the Thessalonians were Greeks. We're in the Roman Empire. The Greek Empire had already been conquered, but the Greek culture was never conquered. The Romans only imitated Greek culture and absorbed it. So the Greeks did not believe in the afterlife. They did not believe in general in the resurrection. Their philosophers were pretty materialistic and to a point atheistic. Not all of them, but some of them. Let me read to you what somebody writes, and I believe it's there in your screen. Leaving hope as a fundamental religious attitude was unknown to Greek culture. But in the final analysis, man had to stand without hope before the hostile forces of guilt and death. Sophocles, or Sophocles, however you pronounce that, in a chorus lamented, the highest remains never to be brought to life. Seneca called hope the definition of an uncertain good, but deification and immortality promised by the mystery religions were human pipe dreams. The claims of the new atheists are not new. They are as old as dirt. Nothing new under the sun. You, you, you think you're reading somebody from our day. It's the same. It's the same story. Psalm 14.1, it's old before Christ. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So when you encounter this new atheism and these new writings and you say, oh, maybe it is true that Christianity is just another myth. It's as old as dirt. Don't let me be swayed by those things. Now, a theological note on the passage which jumps at us. Why does Paul call the dead to be asleep? Are the dead sleeping? Is there such a thing as the sleep of the soul? Which some Christians believe, like Seventh-day Adventists, for example. I'm not aware of others who may believe that. But some Christians believe when you die, your soul goes to sleep. Why? Because the New Testament calls the dead as to be sleeping. Is that the case? Well, there's an old rule that you guys know. You interpret a difficult passage or a strange passage in light of those that are clear. And once you get the ones that are kind of clear and black and white, then you try to see what, what's around this strange expression or passage. And Paul could have not been so dumb to contradict himself. And I can categorically affirm that Paul, this Jewish rabbi, did not believe in the sleep of the soul. Why do I say that? Because elsewhere in Philippians 1.21, he said that he would prefer to die and depart and be with Christ because that was 
much, much better. And those who know a little bit of grammar knows that in the original there is a superlative, but it's even a, a, a grammatical exaggeration. It's a superlative. It's like if you would say, he's, he's, he's the bestest. You don't say the bestest, you say the best. But you, you're trying to exaggerate the, the state. And Paul says, well, it is much, 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 much best to die and be with Christ. Well, if he believed in the sleep of the soul, I don't know what is better about dying and going to sleep. In 2 Corinthians 5, 1 and 10, or 1 through 10, he calls being dead as being absent from the body, but being present with the Lord. For Paul, you transition immediately from this present state where you are bound to a body to a state in which you are freed from the body, but in the very presence of the Lord. In Luke 23, 43, Jesus makes an interesting promise to the thief on the cross. He cries to him, remember me when you come in your kingdom. The thief on the cross sees him dying. He heard that he preached about a coming kingdom. The thief on the cross was a Jew. He was crucified in the area of his crimes as the Romans would do. And he says to him, when you come in your kingdom in the future, whenever that is, remember me. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Doesn't sound like we're going to sleep now. Your soul will you know, you're going to be with me in paradise. And Luke wrote that, and Luke was a companion of Paul in his missionary trips. In Hebrews 12, 23, I believe Paul wrote it, but if you don't, it's okay. It is described that heaven is a place where the spirits of the righteous are currently gathered around the throne of God, worshiping and serving him. The spirits of the righteous made perfect in heaven. That doesn't sound like sleeping to me either. Revelation 6, 9 and 10, the apostle John, he says that he saw the souls of those who had been decapitated, killed for their testimony of Jesus, praying to God for justice. Again, that doesn't look like sleeping. These guys are praying around the throne of God in their souls. In 2 Timothy 4, 6 and 8, at the end of his life, Paul is aware that he's going to be executed. And he says, I know the time for my departure has come, has arrived. Peter says the same in 2 Peter 2, 10 and 11. He says, I'm ready to depose of my body. Get rid of my body, like you would remove a garment. The same expression. And that language is not the language of sleeping. And you can go to the Old Testament and it's the same. There's this hope for living in the presence of God. So, okay, then what, why does Paul say, those who are asleep? I side with those commentators who say, it's an expression to bring comfort. And it's an expression to say, for Christians, death doesn't have a sting. For Christians, death doesn't have this tragic, dramatic, final statement that it has for those who have no hope. That's why in Revelation 14, 13, it is described that those who die are blessed because they are resting from their labors. 
or in Romans 8, 22 and 25. Paul says we are expecting in the resurrection the redemption of our bodies. We are expecting when our bodies will be changed and released from the curse of sin, which is death and corruption and decay. Or in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, Paul says, death, where is your sting? Where is your poison? It's gone for the believer because Christ rose from the dead. Interesting contrast in Psalm 116, 15, because there is this element in which the psalmist says, it is precious in the sight of the Lord, the death of his saints. But also he says, the cords of death encompass me Peter, speaking of Jesus, says the courts of death could not retain him. He was the holy son of God. And of course, in, in Isaiah 57, 1, the prophet says, The righteous is removed from sea and affliction. The Lord takes him away. So the other day I was praying for Chewy, our sister who's battling cancer. Or when we pray for Bob Andrews, who has terminal cancer. And you enter into this conflict... Because you say, Lord healed them. <laughs> and I imagine what would God think? You want me to keep them still here? Suffering in the body of death? For what? Well, if it's my wife, <laughs> I don't want to lose her. If it's my husband, my father, my son, my daughter. My... We understand those things. But, but there's an element in which death is precious in the sight of the Lord when it is the death of one of his saints. And, and, and if you know Troy, and you talk to him, but remember Troy, Troy and I, and others of you, most of you, but I'm not going to say, belong to this group of people who are not balanced, and who are not normal. Some of us fake it, and pretend, and you see him, if you don't know me, you say, oh, how poised. No, if you really knew me, you know, he's crazy. Well, Troy is even crazier than me because when you ask him, hey, Troy, how are you? Ah, still here, I didn't die. Because he wants to die. <laughs> I don't know if that is godliness or craziness, but in a sense, there's an element of truth there. You know why? Because Paul says, I'd rather depart and be with Christ. That is much better. Listen, I don't know what to do. Because I know I need to preach the gospel. I need to finish my mission. I need to do what the Lord called me to do. But if you ask me, I'd rather be in that place where I heard things that are ineffable, not given for people to speak or to mention. So that's reality. And death does not sever our union with Christ. Because Paul says, not even life or death can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. I know it's easy to say. And when I was praying for this sermon, I said to the Lord, remember that it's a lot easier to say than to live and talk is cheap. Please don't take my wife from me or anybody close. So I'm just going to preach. And I'm telling you guys, I'm, I'm being honest with him, Lord. Now, what's the argument? The argument is, well, Jesus rose from the dead and so will those who hope in him. And that is the case Paul builds in 1 Corinthians 15, by the way, when he says, because Jesus rose, we will rise. Jesus is the first fruit from the dead. He's the first one to 
to, to have been raised, to never die again, and so it will be with us. Jesus' resurrection is the preamble, is the first fruit, is the teaser, the trailer of that movie of our resurrection. And even Jesus plainly affirmed it to Martha when he came to Lazarus' tomb, I am the resurrection and the life. And anyone who believes in me, even if that person dies, they will live. Yes, in, in the eternal life, in eternity. That's what Martha says. And Jesus says, no, Martha, no. I am the resurrection. It's not just a future event. Whomever dies believing in me will really not die. And that is the argument and the consolation of the text. The resurrection is a pivotal Christian doctrine. The resurrection is central in Christian preaching. Yesterday, I heard two sound and great theologians of our day. I'm going to give the names. I'm not saying they are not believers, by the way. Because God didn't give me the judging of who is a Christian and who's not. Okay? So, for the sake of the record, I'm going to treat them as believers because I really do not know. But I heard Kenneth Copeland and Joel Osteen say, what? Yes, I did. I, was, I mean, I could take like, like five minutes of each, to be honest. <laughs> it's funny that what I heard, I didn't hear anything about the resurrection. Didn't hear anything about the life to come. Didn't hear anything about our hope in Christ. All it was about this life. And if you really want to have a nice, good-looking church and with a lot of people, yeah, talk to them about this life because that's what people want to hear about. This life. Well, Scripture is not about this life. It's about the life to come. (laughs) This life is actually very short. That's why the resurrection is central to gospel preaching. You see it in Acts. You see it in the letters of Paul. You see it in the Gospels. The resurrection is a pivotal Christian doctrine. Why? Because it is, first of all, God's imprimatur, God's sign of approval, God's seal of agreement that Jesus indeed died for the sins of others. That's, what, that's why Romans 4.25 says, Jesus was raised for our justification. Why was Jesus raised for our justification? Because if he would have remained in the tomb, it only meant that the salary of sin, which is death, he paid by dying. But he was raised because he paid someone else's dead, ours. So that resurrection is the sign that God approved what he did. And it is also proof that Jesus was the sinless son of God. The cords of death, as Peter says, or as Peter preached in the book of Acts, could not retain him because he was sinless. He could have not died. He could have not paid the salary of sin. And the resurrection also will be the annihilation of the curse of sin and the consequences of sin. That's what Romans 8, 21 and 32 teach. Therefore, that resurrection of Jesus is the argument for the comforting promise that we too will be raised. Is the argument to give us hope in the middle of death. And then the promise is, thirdly, 
that Jesus will come back for us, whether we are dead or we are alive. The word Paul uses is parousia. You've heard that expression. Parousia is a public, grandiose event. Jesus says, from the, as the lightning bolt that goes from east to west, so will be the Son of Man in his coming. Every eye will see him. It's not going to be a private, hidden, uh, somehow secluded, encrypted event. It's going to be for all to see. It's a parousia. It's a major, public, glorious event. It's like the coming of dignitaries. And that's perhaps what Paul is having in mind. When a dignitary came to town, it was a major event. People would come out to the streets. The other day I was seeing a documentary of when Prince Diana died. And you see all these people in London just flooding to see her her. her casket go by. That's exactly what happened when a dignitary came to town. A whole town came out to receive him. There were trumpets blasting. It was a celebration. It was a major event. Nobody could escape the reality that the emperor or some kind of great dignitary had come to town. That's the expression Paul uses for that event when Jesus will come back for us, whether we are dead or alive. This figure of like a thief in the night, which for many is like, well, if it's like a thief in the night, what does that mean? It means that it will be unexpected. Not that it will be secret. Some people say, well, it's like a thief in the night. He comes at night and nobody notices. That's why he steals the things you have in your house. No, he comes when nobody's waiting. If you know you're going to be stolen from something you're you're on guard you're watching you're you're waiting for the thief jesus says i'll i'll show up when nobody's waiting when nobody knows like yeah when you live in miami like that doesn't happen to you right you know that something's gonna happen yes well no jesus will it, it will happen like if you lived in milwaukee perhaps where they have less petty crime like we have whatever but the point of a thief in the night is not secrecy it's a unexpected because an an archangel will announce it the text says an archangel will come with a sounding command and a trumpet will sound in first corinthians 15 paul says at the last trumpet interesting paul says at the last trumpet there's not going to be any more trumpet sound after this event when jesus comes for his own raises those who are dead and takes with him those who are alive It's the last event. It's the closing of a time, of an era. It's an event that will be glorious and majestic. We are not told exactly what trumpet is that. There are seven trumpets in Revelation decrying different judgments. But if you read Revelation, it's not a chronological tale. It's a parallel story. It's like watching the same play from different cameras. Like when they request for a replay on the NBA, you see the coach saying, show it again. I'm challenging the, 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 the umpire's call. Well, the same. And then you have all these takes from different cameras just to show you exactly the same play. That's pretty much the way Revelation runs. It's an allegorical story about redemption which runs parallel with different signs for 
announcing these, these judgments of God. Well, at the last of those trumpets, Jesus will come, raise the dead, and transform those who are alive and take them with him to be forever with the Lord. And then the text says, those who are dead will be risen first. Jesus affirms that in John 5. The day will come when those who are in the tombs, in the sepulchers, will hear the voice of the Son of God, and all will rise. Some will rise to a resurrection of life, those who did right, and others will rise to a resurrection of death, those who did, who did not do right. I'm just paraphrasing what John 5 says. If it bothers your ears because your theology needs that I explain that salvation is by grace alone and all of that, let your ears be bothered. I'm just quoting how John says, how John 5 says it. John doesn't make the explanation. We have it in other places. Daniel 12, 1 and 2, the same. At the end, those who lie in the dust of the earth will be risened. Some will be risened to a resurrection of life. Others will be risened to a resurrection of perpetual shame and confusion. Ezekiel 37 illustrates the same. He sees this valley of dry bones. And God shouts at the dry bones. And then all of a sudden flesh and sinews and muscles and tissue starts to come to the bones. And bodies are formed. And then life comes upon them. They rise and they start walking. Dead man walking. Ezekiel 37 has that imagery. What is that? And it's glorification. It's the end. When God will transform this body of our humiliation, Scripture says, and will turn it into a body in the likeness of the body of glory of Jesus. I don't know exactly how it will work, but in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, at the final trumpet, in a zap of time, the dead will be risen first, and then those of us who are alive will be transformed, and we will be raptured, taken, zapped, to be with the Lord. The word is arpazo. In Spanish, in Dominican slang, we have this expression, uh, I hit him with a zarpazo. That's when you, you have something and it's bothering, but boom, and you hit him quickly with whatever you have in your hands. Well, that verb is zarpazo. In, in, a, in a twinkling of an eye, it's a zapping in a moment. Then this rapture, as has been called, occurs. And we are transformed, and we will be with the Lord forever. And we will meet him in the air. And it is the ushering of the eternal state. When things will be transformed, creation is released from its present slavery. Things as we see them will not be because Second Peter says the earth and all the elements will be burned and melted. And then new heavens and new earth will be ushered in where righteousness dwells. That's the language that's used for that. But what is the practical application of that? What is the purpose? Why do we know these things? Why does the Bible speak of these things? Well, in context, the church had lost people. People had died. We don't know the reason. Perhaps it was persecution. 
Paul had to leave Thessalonica in a rather um, um, surreptitious, if you will, but also trepidated way because he was being persecuted by the Jews. But, but, but people were becoming antagonistic to Christians. So perhaps some of them had been killed or perhaps they had just died of natural causes. We don't know the context or the details. But Paul wants to tell them, hey, you've lost people and you're grieving. But you will see your loved ones again. Because they haven't lost their union with Christ. Because they haven't lost their treasure. Death is not final to the believer. And then, of course, (laughs) if it were not so, this life would be a bad joke. Think about it. You start with all the illusions of life, like some of you kids. And I'll be this, and I'll be that, I'll be an engineer, and I'll marry, and I'll have a nice house, and I'll have a car, and I'll have this. And my children, who are now adults, they say, Dad, we don't know why we wanted to grow up. (laughs) Laura has to wake up at 5 a.m. She showed showed us her house this morning, covered in snow. Tomorrow, 5 a.m., to feed goats and the chickens and all these things and she slept until 11 in my house when she lived with us so why did we want to grow up my son has to go out to work every day now he has a family to feed a mortgage to pay car payments and just the life right and then you come to 59 and you say i got everything i wanted and then some that's it looking at pictures Videos of what happened? That's it? It's a joke. It's a bad joke. So you're just recycling people? God, that's what you do? You made this sphere? You just recycle it every 70 years or every 80 years with new people? I mean, you think you're indispensable at work? Hold your company. I work for a company that celebrated its 100th anniversary last year. And sometimes I feel that I really need to answer this email. Mama, give me a second. I need to answer this email. Really? (laughs) I don't. Nor you. None of us are indispensable. Go east from here and take 117th, heading to Killian. Look to your right and look at Caballero Woodland. (laughs) Populated with a lot of people that thought they too were indispensable. It's a bad joke. If that was what life is. I don't even know how an, how an atheist people, atheistic people can make it. I don't know how materialistic existentialist philosophers make it. It baffles me. Eschatology is given to boost hope. Not to cause divisions over times and events. Do you want to know what I believe? If you don't know me, I'm a preterist. I'm also post-tribulational. And I'm also an amillennialist. Huh? Yeah, huh? And nothing. Who cares? Oh, I'm, I'm futuristic. And I'm pre-tribulational. Or mid-tribulational. And premillennialist. I'm waiting. You know, the stones are packed in the port in New York. Yeah, I heard that in 1980. They're still packed there. 42 years now. I don't care. If they are, awesome. Great. 
Go to the inauguration. Send me pictures. Really, that's not important. Eschatology is not given for that. Eschatology is given that we may have hope. That we may know we will be forever with the Lord. The other day I was thinking, every joy we have in this life has this big problem. You start eating, right? And you're hungry. As a, hungry as a bull. I don't know what's the expression. Hungry as whatever hungry can be. And they serve this juicy, nice steak before you. And you barely can open your mouth because it's filled with saliva. Appetite wet and you start cutting it. Oh, this delicious flavor. What happened at the end of the steak? It's already cold, dry, and you just eat it because you paid for it. Right? Because you start to get filled. You say, what happened? You start having your chocolate ice cream and it looks so delicious. And you feel the goosebumps in your cheeks. And it's so amazing. And at the end it's like, like, do you want this? Because I don't want any more. Do you want to take mine? No, no, no. Take yours. I already have mine. I'm... Every joy on this life is, that, is like that. Everything comes to an end. We get fed up with everything. Everything gets us tired. Doesn't satisfy I was thinking the other day, wow. So in eternity, it's like, I'm happy, and then happier, and happier, and happier, and better, and better. Yes, because God is infinite. And you will never be able to exhaust delighting, tasting, enjoying God. The psalmist says, taste and see, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the person who finds their trust in Him. So in eternity, I'll be tasting and seeing, and my eyes will not get tired, or my taste buds get tired of just drinking the joy of God's presence, the pleasures that are forevermore at His right hand. Yes, and that's why Paul says, comfort one another with His words. Not fight one another over seven years of tribulation. Did you see seven years of tribulation here, by the way? Oh, no, no, you have to read Daniel and read Matthew and Revelation and count the days. Okay, then, then, awesome, great. I have enough math in my life already with command, so I don't need more. Count whatever you want. That's not given for that. It's given for consolation. Even Luther, it is said, that he said to his little dog, be comforted. You too will have a golden tail. Oh, there will not be animals. It's going to be a box, a cube of 2,160 kilometers in width, height, and length. And it's going to be a cube with this golden street in the middle. Is that how you think of heaven? Really? What a boring heaven you have, boy. Heaven is new heavens and new earth. It is being able to do what you were meant to do as an image bearer of God. It is enjoying creation, enjoying life, including animals. Why do you say that? Oh, give me, give me some proof that God will let Satan get away with not having animals in eternity. 
Oh, and that when Satan won. You see, God made the animals at the beginning in the garden or in creation. And the second, the first Adam blew all of that. And then when the second Adam came, he's going to restore everything but the animals. Not that. What a boring idea of heaven you have then. And what a limited view of redemption you have. Because there's even heavenly creatures that resemble animals according to what Ezekiel describes. So I look forward to enjoying dogs and lions and cats and everything in eternity without allergies or without fear. That's what the text is for. And of course our eschatology should have two purposes. If anything you forget, two things about eschatology. Two things about the last things. One, a deterrent to sin. 2 Peter 3, 11-13 Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you not be? Living holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. And if you've seen Discovery Channel, you've seen the thing about the sun growing and absorbing the earth. and all. You've seen that, right? Well, Peter said already that. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So yes, eternity should serve as a deterrent for sin. Because at the end... Every word, every deed will not remain hidden. We will give an account. That's the problem of atheism or agnosticism. That I have to give an account to who? To God. No, there's no God. Yes, there is one. And whether you believe it or not, you will give an account. So that should serve as a deterrent to sin. But of course, that should serve as an encouragement to service 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So whether it is in front of a pile of laundry, or a heap of dirty dishes, or a special project, or some kind of piece of machinery that needs to be fixed, or whatever it is you do, Paul says, do it unto the Lord, not for men. And from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. That's what eschatology is for. And if you haven't lost anyone, because you're too young, you will. For sure. One of you will bury the other spouse. Know that. We will attend that funeral. Or ours will be attended by our spouse. That pain is real and it's coming. But guess what? Since we believe Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring those who have fallen asleep with him. May you be found with him now, so that when you die, you wake up also 
with him. Amen. Amen. Father, bless your word and use it according to your purposes. And help us, help us to be anchored in your promise that is anchored in the resurrection of our Savior and in his declaration that he will come back for us whether we are dead or alive. Forever we will be with him. Please bless your people and encourage them. In Jesus' name, amen.